This is week number nine in our study of the book of Daniel. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at really the history of humans and how that was predicted, foreshadowed, fulfilled in the image that God showed to Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately the dream and the interpretation that he gave to Daniel so that Daniel might not only give it to Nebuchadnezzar, but that he might write it down so that we, 2,600 years later, might read the things that Daniel wrote that God was prophesying at the time in which Nebuchadnezzar lived. It's just amazing to me how history unfolded exactly according to what God said it would, and that will continue on. This is no fluke, it's no accident. Daniel truly did write in the 6th century B.C., regardless of what the skeptics say, And God used this image and used Daniel to predict what was going to unfold over human history. And so as we've walked through this, you remember that um, we've looked at the uh, Babylonian um, empire that was clearly spoken of by uh, Daniel as he interpreted the dream. Then we went to the Medo-Persians. Then we went to the Greeks. And then we went to the Roman Empire. And we've talked about that quite a bit. Because that fourth empire, um, there really are several views of who that is, what that is, when will that be, has it already been, will it be coming in the future. And, you know, we've talked about there's at least four possibilities. There are many, and this is what I've been taught in the church, who believe that this is the, um, the fourth empire was the Western Roman Empire that basically was done away with in 468. Um, A.D. with the burning of Rome. And then there are others who say, well, that's not exactly right, that the two legs of iron, one is the Western Roman Empire, one is the Eastern Roman Empire, which was based in Constantinople. You remember 140 years before Rome burned, that Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople, which is today um, Istanbul, Turkey. And that that empire and the Western Empire are the two legs. Then there's a third view that, no, that's not right. The Western isn't involved at all. It's the Eastern Empire, and the two legs represent one, the nation of Syria, the other, the nation of Egypt, who were the powerhouses, which were two of the four kingdoms that Alexander the Great's kingdom was broken into when he died. And then there are others who say, no, none of that's right, that Rome isn't included at all in this image of, that is seen by Nebuchadnezzar, but rather that fourth kingdom is a kingdom that's yet to be, one that will be at the end of the age, and that has not been yet, and um, is coming. And so there are these different views, and I'm not trying to persuade you which one that you ought to hold to, but my purpose in us walking through these things and looking at them is that so you might think about it, that you might ask the Spirit to give you guidance and to illumine your mind, that you realize that regardless of what you were taught, because I was taught all through my life that this fourth kingdom was the Roman kingdom in the Western, and that one day the Europeans will be revived, and that's who this fourth kingdom is talking about. I've told you outrightly that I... Don't I, I lean away from that now. But I was taught that all my whole life. My purpose in us walking through this is so that you might challenge the things that you've been taught by men. Because we were taught, a lot of us were taught wrong. There's a whole lot of things that I was taught when I was young that I had to have discarded because it was simply error. And the scriptures have shown it to be error. I'm not saying that that's a wrong view. I'm not going to um, put down the people who hold that view. But I'm going to say there are other possibilities. And from my perspective, those other possibilities are more likely than the one that we're talking about Western Rome. I think at the very least, we're talking about Eastern Rome. And going a little bit further, I think we're talking about a kingdom that comes at the end of the age that has not yet been. But I could be wrong. We can't be dogmatic about these things. We shouldn't be so arrogant to think that we've got this figured out and that our view and our perspective is right. The world is changing vastly, has since, you know, a lot of those people who are locked into 
Western Rome. That's what it looked like whenever, um, you, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, when the European Union began to become, then that was verification for that, that you know, Europe is uniting again. But you look at it now, they're not 10 nations, right? There's a whole bunch more. And there's an uprising over in the Middle East that is a sweeping movement um, by the Muslims again. You know, this isn't the first time the Muslims have swept the earth. If you go back um, uh, really to the end of the Byzantine Empire with the Ottomans, that was the Muslims uh, working their way all the way up into Europe, ultimately being thwarted by Spain and pushed back out. So this is not new. This is uh, repeatable in history. And so we can't be so dogmatic as to say this is exactly what that means because the world may change again. Christ made tarry, and we don't know when he's coming. And so we, but we look at what we know. We look at what has happened. We look at what is present. We look at what the scriptures say, and you, you need to think about these things. You know, I was thinking about, well, why, why do we bother with all this, right? Why do we even spend the energy and the time to walk through all of this? And I want to show you a verse at the very end of the Bible, all the way over in Revelation 22. And this has just struck me this week. You know, why, why do we do this? Because believe me, I have to, um, I, I'm accountable for what this class walks through. And ultimately, not just before you people and before my elders, but before the Lord himself. And I will give a, a, an account for the things I say in this room and for where I've taken this class. And so I, that, that is a, a, a burden that I bear, that I am serious about. And so I have to think through these things. Are we just wrangling and wrestling with words, or are we truly trying to please the Lord and to understand his scriptures? And this verse over in chapter 22 of Revelation gives me comfort, and um, I, I take it seriously. Um, I'm looking for it. It's not in my notes, so I can't go there. You help me. It says, it says, blessed is everyone who um, studies, really, this, this 14. prophecy. 14, thank you. Yeah, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life. It's more than that. Seven. 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 And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I think that would hold for all the prophecies. So there is blessing in the study of the scriptures. And, you know, these prophecies were not given so that we might be confused. They were given so that we might have more trust in our Lord as the, as the history unfolds and we see the fulfillment of those prophecies to have confidence in that everything that he has written will ultimately be fulfilled exactly as it's written in the book. And so there is blessing in the studying of these prophecies. I, I know my life is enriched by it. I trust that yours is. But we're not just going through this so that we might wrangle with words and we might figure out what is the exact right prophecy or the exact right interpretation. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to stimulate one another to think on these things, to, to study of them, to, to d- dig deep that we might have a greater understanding. Go ahead, Phil. In verses 18 and 19 of yep. Revelation, Yep, absolutely, absolutely. We, we, we will not figure all this out, okay? But it's worth the effort to figure out what we can figure out and to be stimulated to think about them so that we might think about where the world is really headed that might drive you to a greater passion to preach the gospel to those around you when you realize the ultimate end here and the, and the devastation that will come with that. Good, Andy. Yes. 
Yeah, you can imagine Daniel's world looked like chaos. I mean, absolute chaos for his homeland. And yet God sovereignly was orchestrating his plan. And, and, and then he took Daniel and elevated him to such a place that Daniel would be the prominent figure in the Babylonian kingdom, be able to write these words that we might study them. So we will study them this morning. <laughs> Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. And my purpose is that we might get to the end of the chapter, although you sometimes thwart me in my purposes. <laughs> Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 44, there the scripture reads, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and his interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mystery, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Okay, so one of you last week properly pointed out that as I was asking the question about in verse 44, who are these kings that there is um, a pronoun used there. And so I went um, to my good friend John David Thompson. And many of you know who John David is. John David is uh, um, almost through with his dissertation and his PhD. is an expert in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And so I was talking to John David this week, and so I asked him about this verse. And so he went back and did some study for me. And he, told, he tells me that, yes, the pronoun is there in the Aramaic. So it's in the original language. It's not just added by men to make the English make sense. And that his reference refers back, in his mind, to the toes of the image, to the ten toes of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. So when it says in the beginning of verse 44, then king, uh, sorry, uh, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That those kings refers back to this image and the toes that were made of clay and iron mixed together. Some of clay, some of iron, some of clay and iron. And so that reference of those kings is referring to those who exist at the time when God establishes an eternal kingdom. So I'm going to walk through this a little bit, okay, and kind of take a look at a couple of different scriptures and see if we can place all this together. Now, from my study, the best I understand, there are only two other places. We have the... the it's inferred here. You have the kings referring to toes, knowing that at least humans have ten toes that we're talking about ten kings. Okay? And these are kings, and so they have kingdoms, and so these are rulers over individual kingdoms. There's ten of them. There are only two other places that I know of in Scripture where ten kings or ten kingdoms are spoken of. One is over in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24. And this is the interpretation that's given to Daniel about um, the fourth terrible beast that he sees in his vision that has ten horns. The interpretation is given there in 724 that those ten horns are ten kings. Okay? 
The only other place in Scripture that I've been able to find is over in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12, where there is an image or a beast that is described that that the, the woman is sitting on. It's a scarlet beast. It has seven heads and ten horns. And then down in, in and so this is a, a picture of Babylon sitting on the, on the uh, top of the beast that ultimately will ravish her. And so in Daniel, uh, Revelation 17, verse 12, the interpretation is given that these 12 horns are ten kings. Those are the only other two places in Scripture. And so I don't think that's coincidental. So I think those two things match and that when you talk about the ten kings in Revelation, you're talking about the same ten kings that are given in Daniel and the same ten kings that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the ten toes of the beast, of the image that was before him. I, think, I don't think that's coincidental. If there are only three places where ten kings are mentioned, then I think those things probably go together. And I did research and I studied and I can't find it anywhere else. If you are able to, that's good. And we'll talk about that. But those are the only three references that I find to the Ten Kings. So um, amazingly, here we stand, you know, uh, a lot later, 2,600 years after Daniel wrote. and, And it's still not perfectly clear what it is. But the scriptures give us these references that we can look at. And of course, because... Ultimately, if God wills and the Lord tarries, we'll get to chapter 7 of Daniel. And so we'll talk about this again. And then ultimately, hopefully, we'll get all the way over to chapter 17 in Revelation. And we'll talk about this again. And so we've got a couple more opportunities to talk about these ten kings. So we can't be dogmatic in who they are. Um, but And it's debatable who they are. I'll, I'll admit that readily. But I do think you can begin to put things together. And I trust that the Spirit will do that in your mind. I'm not going to um, uh, invite you or demand that you agree with me in everything. I mean, it's clear, right, by this class, that, that things are debatable. But you don't believe something simply because someone says it or because you read it in a book. Okay, don't do that. Study for yourself. Come to conclusions on your own. Don't trust the writings of men, even good men. You can read them, you can be influenced by them, but ultimately don't put your faith in them. Trust the God of the scriptures and the spirit who lives within you to illumine your mind, to show you the truth. You come to conclusions not based on what other men have concluded. That's what we need to do. That's not just true in these prophecies and in in this particular uh, genre of scripture. That's true all the time. That's true everywhere in the scriptures, is that you need to be influenced more by the scriptures than you're influenced by men. And there's only one way that can happen, and that's that you read and study the scriptures. Go ahead. Yes, he did. That's right. That's right. Heard the message of Paul, were, were influenced by it, but yet confirmed and believed things because they were verified by the scriptures. That's what we need to all be doing. That's what you need to put your trust in, not in a teacher at the front of the class or a preacher in the pulpit. You have the spirit of God within you if you've placed faith in Christ, and that spirit desires to illumine your mind and show you the truth out of scriptures. Okay, so debatable. Can't be conclusive, but we'll talk about it at least twice more if God wills. Okay. Okay, now, in those days, the, key, the, God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. Now, this obviously refers back to verses 34 and 35, where, he, where Daniel was describing the actual dream, and he said, you continue looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time 
and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel says what that is, that is in those days the, king, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Okay, so we need to talk about this kingdom. What, what is unique about this kingdom? There's a couple of things. What's unique about it compared to all the other kingdoms that are represented in the image? Okay, it's, it's, it's a stone that's not cut by human hands or by hands, indicating what? All right, that its origin is not of man. This is not um, all the other kingdoms that are here are men taking into their hands and doing what they want to do. That is not true about this kingdom that we're talking about now at the end of the, of the interpretation. This is a kingdom that is supernatural, that is beyond the natural realm, is beyond human hands. It doesn't begin or originate or even um, uh, is centered in man. It's beyond us. Okay, and we could talk about exactly what that means. And, and But here's what I want to know. What is your perspective about this kingdom is this a spiritual kingdom is this a physical kingdom what what do you think about this final kingdom that we're talking about here all right you think it's literal any other thoughts on that okay and we're going to talk about that a little bit Okay, that, I mean, it does give that description that the mountain fills the earth, meaning that it influences every corner and crevice of the planet, right? All the other, kings have, all the other kingdoms that have been mentioned so far have been literal physical kingdoms headed up by literal physical kings. So why would this one not be any different? It would be a literal physical kingdom ruled by a literal physical king. Okay, and I agree with that. that I mean, you talk about the Babylonians, you talk about the Medo-Persians, you talk about Greece. If Rome is included, you talk about Rome. These are all things that happened on the planet. We have history to reveal that. These are physical kingdoms, physical things that influence people physically and mentally and spiritually on the planet occurred here. Now, I will tell you that if you believe this is a physical kingdom on this planet, that you're in the minority of true believers. Okay, you're in the minority because most don't believe that. When you start talking about these kingdoms, they start talking about spiritual things and allegories and that we're not talking about literal things and literal kingdoms that exist. But in my mind, this is just the fifth kingdom that's revealed by the image, right? By Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Why did God give Nebuchadnezzar this dream? to show him what was going to happen in the future, right? In some spiritual future? No. All these things occurred successively just as the image showed that they would, just as Daniel interpreted them. So why, when you get to the end, would you change all of a sudden? And it would be something different as opposed to all the others. So I don't think it is. And it just makes sense to me. You've got revelations to sort of read first. Sure that you know what I mean in a thousand millennium that's his kingdom. I mean, right. I mean, just all of this is God sort of uh, and Daniel sort of blinded it for a, for a point. Actually, at the time of the Gentile, but Revelation just reassures us this is what the kingdom is. Well, it's forever, and that's what it says in Revelation. I mean, it clearly says that that Jesus is on the throne. It's his kingdom. It lasts for a thousand years. Then after the thousand years, he releases the devil. And after that, a little short of time, that's it. So right. Right. And there are, I would say, I, I, I don't push against that. But I'm going to tell you, there are many who love God as much as you do, who are true believers, who would disagree with that. 
that Revelation doesn't talk about a physical kingdom, that that kingdom exists now, that the events of Revelation happened in 70 A.D. Right. and continue to this day. And that, and that, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you, you're in the minority because if you, if you hold that view, okay, then you are what would be labeled, I won't call you this, but you are what would be labeled a dispensationalist. Okay, that is dispensationalism. That there's a difference between Israel and the church, right? That there's a literal kingdom. Those are things that are held to by dispensationalists. Now, there's many, many, many things that dispensationalists hold to that we discard, that we do not agree with, that we would not hold to. But those, we do hold to. That there's a literal kingdom and it's yet to come. So how... I'll come back to you in a second. How does that kingdom match up to your belief that Jesus is coming again? How do those things mesh? How do they come together? I mean, you believe Jesus is coming again, right? 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 So how does that mesh with this fourth kingdom that's established by without human hands that crushes all the others and that endures forever because that's what this says right it's not that it just comes for a little while it's that it endures forever so how do you match that up to your belief out of the other scriptures can you do that can you make those two things harmonize this is forever now this kingdom that's established here is forever You have to make all these things work, right? You can't just be part of them. They all must work together. You have to take all of the scriptures and harmonize them, not just the ones you like the best, right? So I want to walk through a couple of things. And, and you know, I, I think you're there, but let's just make sure that the scriptures reinforce what we believe, right? Always. Oh, it does. It does. And ultimately, you know, in, in four or five years, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Not so much. Not so much. I don't think you have to go to Revelation to answer this question. All right. Show us. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a challenge? So in other words, Daniel doesn't have the answers when God says it's hidden, but it's for the future, because the reason it's hidden because there was a, a period of a Gentile that Daniel didn't understand. None of the Jewish really understood the period of the Gentile. Yeah, yeah. Jesus does a fairly good job, right? <laughs> Let's look at a couple of things, okay? So turn over to um, Matthew chapter 19. This is the scene here is the uh, rich young ruler has come to Christ and said, how might I enter into the kingdom? He tells him, goes away sad. Um, and then Christ says it's very difficult for a rich man to be saved. And the belief at the time was the more uh, alms you gave, the more offerings you gave, and the more favor you had with God. And so the disciples, that's what the disciples held to because that's what the Pharisees taught. And so they turned to Jesus, and if a rich man can't be saved, then what's to become of us? Because they weren't rich. They had left everything, he says. And they were poor, relatively speaking. So Christ turns to them, all of them, the disciples, and he answers them in 19, verse 27. (laughs) Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then... Will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the re- that you who have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this is Christ talking to his disciples, right? Not trying to confuse them, trying to answer their honest question that if a rich man can't be saved, what will become of us? And what's his answer to them? 
that you are going to be the judge. You're going to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, which means what? There's going to be 12 tribes, and they're going to reign over them, right? Now, when does this happen? When Christ sits on his glorious throne, what? Go on. He says something else. In the regeneration. What is the regeneration that Christ is referring to here? Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to his disciples. Pull them aside. Talking to his disciples. What happened to the disciples ultimately? All dead. Right? Returned to dust. So, in order for them to sit on thrones and reign over Israel, what must happen? Resurrection, regenerated, whatever words you want to use, right? I mean, if they're going to sit on a throne with Christ as he sits on his throne, so this could be just spiritual, right? The second That's true, because they believed in Christ. And so they're still, um, you, we could debate this, they're still with Christ today. Is that okay? Christ was the first fruits, right? All the other true believers since the time of Christ ushered into the kingdom. All those before Christ followed him at the time in which he went into the kingdom. First fruit, all the others who had died, and then those who have died through the successive years to the presence of God. Right? Paul says, right? Not in this body, then in the presence of God. So, that's how all that works. All right, so, in order for these guys to reign with Christ, then they have to be regenerated. There have to be thrones established. Christ has to be on a throne, and they will reign with him. Now, there's another very interesting verse about this reigning. Okay, it's, it is in Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 5. Because this is a promise. Well, we'll see who it's given to Revelation chapter 5. And the scene here is um, John begins to weep because there's a scroll and the father wants to hand the scroll to someone to break the seals on the scroll to see what's inside of it because it's the title deed to the earth and there's no one found worthy. So John begins to weep and they all say quit weeping and then between the elders and the throne of God stands the lamb as if slain before the foundations of the earth. And so the lamb is worthy to take the scroll. And so as he does so, this is the chorus that breaks out. This is the um, events that break out that follow that. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. There the scripture reads, When he had taken the book, this is Christ, the, the Lamb, taking the book. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. All right, so let's talk about this. These are people who are going to do what? Reign upon the earth. What did he tell the disciples they were going to do? Reign over the 12 tribes of Judah. All right, now, who are these people that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 5? The ones who are ransomed by the blood of Christ, what? Keep going. From every tribe and nation and language and people or something like that. So these are people from where? From all over the earth who have placed faith in Christ. Right? Now, most of those have died, right? I mean, there may be more to come or a lot more to come, but all those who've lived, except for us who are alive now, have died except for two men that are Old Testament saints, really. 
everybody else has died. So what must happen for them to be able to reign where? On the earth. On the earth. Then they have to be like the apostles, the, the disciples, regenerated. Now, it doesn't say that some of them will reign, right? It says who will reign? That they all will reign over the earth. So how does this work with the belief that the disciples will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel and that all the believers will reign on the earth also? How does that work? Could it be one uh, in Revelation when they talk about the thousand millennium? It's, it's the same earth we're talking about. Yeah. Just a remnant. I think it's just a remnant that is saved. One third of the Jews are saved through the uh, God saves them through, and He says all Jews. That means it's only one third that sees Christ come down. They repent and they, and they believe that He was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. After the thousand years, devils is released, and after that, then that's gone. There's, there's a new earth. That's another earth. A new. It says a new earth. That I think is that possible. What He's talking about at the end that all nations will, all, all, all people will actually live on this new earth. I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. I don't think so. That he's not talking about the eternal state. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. And read the first verse. And in, this, is the, this is the picture of the eternal state. Now I'm going out of order because you asked the question. So I'll probably get confused. But, Revelation 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And if you continue to read, you'll find no other thrones. Because there's no need for a throne. Because you're in the presence of God. You're in the new creation. You're in the new earth. And there's only two thrones. And one's for the Father and one's for Christ. And they rule and reign forever and ever. That's the eternal state. So we don't reign in the eternal state. Keep reading that, and you'll see that who we are in the eternal state. Got to get back there. And he says, in the middle of, the, of its streets, on either side, there's the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. That's you. That's me. That's who what we do in the eternal state. We don't reign. We don't rule. So, no, I don't think it's the eternal state. Because there's only two thrones in the eternal state. Go ahead, Andy. It kind of draws you to, I think, two major distinctions after Daniel and and Revelations and Thessalonians is the distinction between the millennial reign and if you hold to it the literal millennial reign and the eternal kingdom as you just pointed out. The other one that I think seems to be a place where a lot of people get very muddy and confused is the distinction between a kingdom right? I mean, it, it certainly has to do with royalty. Right. It also has to do with reigning. It also has to do with time. Right. Right. So it's a very diverse word. Right. Um, but there's the kingdom and the distinction of the peoples. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the text uses those two terms very deliberately. It does. And it becomes very material, you know, particularly as you get out into later parts of Daniel. Right. And, and, and by the way, in heaven, in the spiritual place, there are no kingdoms. There's only one king, and he rules over all. There aren't other kingdoms that exist in the spiritual eternal state or wherever you want to think about that. Nowhere in Scripture is it talk about there are other kingdoms in the kingdom of God. All right, but here it's clear that the disciples will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel and that the people who place faith in Jesus Christ will reign with him on the earth. Here's the way I think it works. I could be wrong, but Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, set up in Jerusalem is where his throne is at, and the 12 disciples govern over the geography 
of the 12 tribe of Israel that was given originally to Abraham. They're in that land, and geographically, the 12 apostles rule over them. And then there's all the rest of the earth. The earth is not destroyed by this time. Matter of fact, it's made back like it was in close to the Garden of Eden, where snakes don't bite you and where people can lay down beside you know, their enemies and the animals don't fight and all of this that's spoken of in the change that happens when Christ rules. But there are peoples all across the land Yes, many of them have been killed in Revelation, no question, that most of the earth, uh, at least two-thirds of the population, so today somewhere four, four and a half billion people have been killed, but there's still two billion left. They're all around the earth, and God establishes you and other believers as reigning over those geographical lands that are outside of the land of Israel. And we each reign over a particular people. Now, there will be a population explosion because the earth is better than it is today. Probably. And, and that there will be a population explosion and the earth will be repopulated. Many of those people will be unbelievers. They will give homage to Christ because you will rule over them and make them give homage to Christ. But that doesn't mean they trust him and they believe him. And so that's what happens during the millennial reign is that you and I and all the other saints rule with Christ as our overruler and the geography of the land given to Abraham is ruled over by the 12 apostles. And that's what he, and that's what he said to them. And that's what he says to you and I in Revelation chapter 5. That you will reign with him on the earth. So go back to there. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That's one of the, the separating marks of this kingdom versus right. the um, And I, I think one of the most fascinating parts of that, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Right. That's just another way of saying the reigning that we've just seen in these other passages. That's right. parade before <laughs> absolutely so you see you see how this begins to work together out of scripture that these are not obscure things these are not just spiritual things that he's talking about these are things that you can trust because they're in the scripture right he told the apostles they would reign with him over the 12 tribes of Israel he told, tells you and I in Revelation 5 that we will reign with him on the earth that's not some spiritual place that's the earth if you look up the word you can it means the earth the planet that we stand on today that planet's not done away with during the millennial reign it will be later but not during that time so go back to you're back in Daniel right chapter 2 verse 44 and so we have now that um I have to talk about some of these things. Just can't get away from it. Let's go. All right, so you understand that um, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That means every other kingdom that's in this image, right? Every one of them leads to a successive kingdom. Even the fourth kingdom, we have debate about who they are. They ultimately lead to a successive kingdom, which is this kingdom that's set up without human hands, right? They all, and this is what it means, not left to another people. Well, when the Babylonians came in and took over Jerusalem, they took all their money. They took all their possessions. When you disposed another nation and you took them over, you benefited from what was previously theirs that's now yours. You took it. And so that's what it means when left to another nation. That will never happen to the kingdom that's established here in verse 44. All right, and that kingdom will not be 
left for another people, it will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure, how long? Forever. Never ending kingdom. All right, now we'll try and reconcile some of these things because we know this earth is not going to last forever, and yet you reign with him on this planet. So there's got to be something that happens here. All right, so we'll keep reading, and then we'll walk into those things. In verse 45, inasmuch, this is like a summary statement. This is Daniel saying to Nebuchadnezzar, here's what I just told you. You know how when you want people to understand what you say, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them what, you, what you're going to tell them, and then you remind them of what you told them, right? And that's how they remember. That's the, the method of teaching. All right, so here, that's what Daniel's doing. He says, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king. Here's the reason for the dream. He's made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So he's kind of summarizing. What he's saying is you have all these kingdoms and they all lead to successive kingdoms, but then at the end... There's this kingdom made without hands that nobody can dispose and that disposes everybody else and it endures forever. And praise be to God for that. That's what's going to happen, Daniel, starting today in 600 B.C., something like that, all the way up, not just until where we're at, not just until the Romans, but until the end of the age when the eternal kingdom is set up all the way to the end, at least 2,600 years, could be thousands more, could be tomorrow. But this is a prophecy not just about the Greeks and the Romans and the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians. This goes to the end of time. This sweeps all the way to the end. So our perspective that, oh, these are just the nations and Rome was the last one, wrong. Wrong perspective. This goes to the end of the age when there is no other kingdom to be established by men. So this is, a, this, is, this is why I believe, one of the reasons I believe, that the fourth kingdom is probably not Rome. Because this is not, this is comprehensive. And there were other people after Rome who didn't have the influence that Rome had, but had significant influence. And I don't think those people are included in this image because they're in the age of grace, which is the way Old Testament prophecies came. We looked at that, right? That the age of grace, the age of the church, the body of Christ, is not seen in the prophecies of the Old Testament, only in the prophecies of the New Testament. That the others are put together. The end of the age and the the coming of Christ the first time, slammed together. The age of grace is not seen clearly. It's foreshadowed, it's intimated, but it's not seen clearly. All right, now, a couple of you have said this several times as we've gone through this passage, is that this stone cut without hands becomes the chief cornerstone, right? Because we know that in, in New Testament scripture. Several times I've heard that said. Now, is that accurate? Is that what is being foreshadowed in the book of Daniel? Is that we're talking about the cornerstone? Let me show you a couple of passages, okay? And let's talk about this cornerstone and the stone that's cut without hands. And let's see how those match together. Because are they the same or are they not? It's a good question. But some of you have jumped to the conclusion that, yes, they are the same. But I want to show you what the New Testament writers wrote about that. Look in 1 Peter. Chapter 2. See, I do think about the things that you say. I really do. So that we can rightly understand. Not that you don't understand. But that we can rightly reinforce what we believe out of the scriptures. Because if we can't do that, then we ought to discard what we think. Okay? If you can't support it out of the scriptures, then we ought to discard it because it could very well just be the imaginations of men. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 
and this is a language that you're familiar with, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. He's going to quote Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but, is sorry, is, then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Okay? Where's that come from? Could be Isaiah 28. Where else? Psalm 118, more likely. Because where he says that, well, I mean, there's several different things he says here, but it could come from either one would be a reasonable way to think about it. And they go together. But they're a little different perspectives. All right, so this is the cornerstone that you're talking about, right? That all believers are being built into a spiritual house which is held together by the precious cornerstone, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. Right? All right, another passage. That that was Peter. Let's see what um, Paul has to say about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is, this is language that is familiar to us, which is why it pops into your mind. But is this the stone that's cut without hands? It's a good question. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 9. No. Verse 12. 19. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So this house of God is based upon what? What's the foundation of it? The foundation is the prophets and the apostles, their teaching, their doctrine, the things they said would happen and do happen. And then the thing that holds them all together upon which the whole foundation rests is Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jews, the one who was rejected but became the chief cornerstone, right? We understand that. And that language all makes perfect sense to us. All right, now, how can you connect that cornerstone to this stone that doesn't support anything in Daniel? Matter of fact, it what? It crushes and destroys everything that there is. Are they the same stone? But we've made that leap, have we not? Several times. In your mind, oh, that's Christ, the cornerstone, is what we're talking about. We've made that leap. And I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, how can you make that leap? (coughs) We're going there. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Right, we're going there. Student of the Bible, I love it. All right, so let's not go to Matthew. Well, let's go to Matthew 21. We could, we could go to other gospel writers also who say the same thing. But we'll go to Matthew 21. All right, and here it's very clear that Jesus Christ quotes from Psalm 118 because the language is so close. And by the way, does that bother you sometimes when they quote from the Old Testament? It doesn't match exactly. Well, think about this. Think about it this way. The Bibles that we have were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, right? And so then they've been translated into English for us. And there are varying translations. Take the ESV, which is a very good one. The NASB, which is a very good one. The New King James, which is a very good one. And they don't all say the same thing. They say, 
close to the same thing, but there are sometimes words are changed. And, well, Christ here is in is translating what was originally written in Hebrew into the language that he spoke. So it's not going to match exactly the same word for word. And then that's been translated into English. So they're not going to match perfectly. When you translate, you don't match perfectly. You have to, the language aren't the same, the sentence structure isn't the same, so you have to translate. That's what translation's all about. So they're not going to match perfectly, and that's absolutely fine. Most of the time, they do match very closely. So don't ever get worried about that, because that used to bug me. Just one of those things, I was like, why don't these match? Because they're being translated. That's why they don't match. Okay, so Matthew 21, verse 42. <coughs> this, is, this is, Jesus has just given the parable of the vineyard. And that ultimately the vine owner goes in and he takes wrath on the people who've killed his people. And then Christ says, Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Same thing we've been talking about, right? This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes, which is exactly what Psalm 118 says. But then Jesus, the prophet, connects the thought of this cornerstone back to the stone cut without hands. Look at what he says. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, he's talking to the Jews, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Mm -hmm. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces but on whomever it falls, it will what? Crush. And then if you have different translations, scatter as dust. Right? So Jesus Christ himself connects these two stones. It's sort of like, remember a couple, um, week before last, or it may have been last week, when we went to Jesus in Luke 24, when he reads from the book of Isaiah? And he reads only the first half of the verse. And he leaves the last half off. The first half being, um, uh, what is that? The favorable day of the Lord. And the last half being the day of the vengeance of God. And so instead of connecting the two, he left one to show there's a distinction between the two. Same thing is happening here. Same rock, same cut without hands from the mountain but two different roles. One as the cornerstone of the church and of the people of God, the building of God. The other role as the one who crushes those who oppose them, scatters them like dust. So they are the same. Okay, You're right, but you've got to be able to connect those things in Scripture. You can't just make the leap and say, well, that's what it means. How do you know that? Well, this is how you know that. You go to the words of Christ and he connects the two for you. Jesus, the last Old Testament prophet, right? Connects the two for us. Make sense? Same stone, but different jobs, different roles, different times. And so, go ahead. You're going back to Daniel chapter 2. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Um, because we... No, no. I think because they're connected in New Testament scripture, that when he talks about... But it's something, there's several things very clear here. This is a stone cut without hands. does not have human origin, but will reign on the earth. There's only one person who fits that description, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that fits that, that, that description, Right? So that's who it is. It's the Messiah of the Jews. And at this present time, in what Daniel couldn't see and is not in the image, the church is being built. The people who will reign with Christ on the, on the planet during his reign, glorious reign on his throne when Israel is judged by the 12 apostles. 
These things all go together. That's what is God is establishing in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. He's establishing Jesus Christ on his glorious throne, the reign of the apostles over geographical Israel, and the reign of the believers over the rest of the planet. That's what's being established. Now, you notice that the 12 kings exist when? Right. When that's established. That's when they exist. Didn't pre-exist? They exist when the kingdom of God is established. That's what it says, right? And in the days of those kings, the kingdom of God is established. So those two things happen at the same time. So you have to be careful when you start talking about kings. You know, those are those guys from back then. And No. These kingdoms, these kings exist when God establishes his glorious kingdom. I thought it was Jesus' kingdom. These are just prince that are helping because he's a soul. talking about the ten kings? Well, we're talking about Revelation and Millennium. Right. There's only one kingdom, that's Jesus. And these are prince that are like, they're helping the kingdom. What and is, Jesus is the king. What does king. Jesus say to the disciples? The reign of thrones over the 12 tribes. What does he say to us in Revelation 5? We will reign with him. Now it's clear that Jesus is the king of kings, the lord of lords, but there are other kingdoms underneath him on the earth that are, that are um, governed and reigned over by the apostles and by the believers. They're subservient, clearly, to the king of kings and the lord of lords. But they exist. Would it be more like uh, how we are now as believers? We're ambassadors. So in other words, they represent that king. They're He's, ambassadors of that kingdom. He says they'll reign. Do you reign today? You, you reign today? Especially over the unbelievers? But only, yeah, but we don't reign, but we're ambassadors. But he says we will reign. There's a difference. Today, we are messengers. We're ambassadors of Christ. But in that day, in the regeneration, when things are changed, when Christ establishes his eternal kingdom, there's a change. And all those believers before us, and all those who will come after us, who will die, will be regenerated, and they will reign with him. And we will help him rule with a rod of iron. There's an Isaiah mentioned about uh, a righteous kingdom. Right. Talk about prince that helps him out. i got to look in that Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> they go to Amish to go see in Jerusalem and, and, and once or twice a year. Right. And they talk about Isaiah. It doesn't say kingdoms. It says there's one kingdom, and they go to place homage to King the King right. in Jerusalem. Right, and that's fine and good. Those things are fit within what we're talking about. But you have to make them fit. You have to understand what they say, right? First go here. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. But we know from Second Thessalonians that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It is unfolding and it is descending into greater and greater degrees of lawlessness. Right. And we're going to see that reach its peak as our Lord returns. But in this millennial reign, you have Christ ruling, Israel-centric. You have, you have um, glorified saints. If you can <coughs> get your head around that, because I sure can. No. You, you have... Saints that are still living in the flesh, right. battling their way through sanctification, just like we are today. Right. And then you have unregenerate unbelievers, right. and who are still in the fall, right. Who, who live through, who are just like us right now, who are dying, right. Who are diseased, right. Who are falling, and, and and what is that that rod? Well, and the children that are born during that millennial reign. They're still the seed of men, meaning they are still unregenerate. Yeah. So they can have a parent that dies and becomes back as That's right. a glorified saint. Imagine That's right. that as a child. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> begins, to, begins to shake your head, doesn't it? And we need that administration of all the things you see today. Exactly. Now rule by 
unrighteousness yep. instead of the pervasive unrighteousness that we see in all. Right, right. And, and Christ is on his throne in Jerusalem. And this is why the saints reign with him, so that his rule might extend over the whole earth because he physically will be in Jerusalem. And so we become his extension to rule the world. That's how he rules the world with a rod of iron. Puts down every single squeamish that is opposed to him. It's just interesting to think about, is it not? I got hands all over the place. Go ahead. Right. And then he's going to basically come back physically and reign on the earth. What will will the Holy Spirit then still indwell us? Um, what will, I mean, I'm assuming it would be that's part of salvation. Mm-hmm. So, but that's different than what he did before. He left so the Spirit could come and indwell believers. Now he's going to come back. The Spirit and he are going to still work together and occupy the same space and glorify saints everywhere. Who are filled with the Spirit? A couple of hands over here. We're, we're going to stop, right? Because it's almost twelve thirty. <laughs> Go ahead. I had a question in Revelation nineteen. Um, just kind of confuses me. Here it's at the second coming. Right. And it says, "Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called." What verse are you in? Mm-hmm. He called to all the birds that fly overhead. Right. Come gather for the great supper of the Lord to eat the flesh of kings, the right. captains, the flesh of mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. Right. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth uh, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Right. And the beast was captured, and with it, with it the false prophet, who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, uh, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire and bur- that burns with sulfur.